Reunion and resettlement from Genesis chapter 46 and chapter 47. We are drawing towards the end of our series in the book of Genesis, which has taken us, uh, well, close to two years, sort of on and off, um, 18 months at least. Now, in the passage before us, Moses tells us how the family, the people of God, the chosen people of God, ended up in Egypt under God's protection and providential care. Last week we spoke of the revelation, the full-on revelation of Joseph to his brothers. But that was just the first stage of God's reunion plan for the whole of the family of Jacob. That reunion plan was going to entail Jacob, the patriarch, moving, leaving Canaan, not temporarily, but permanently into the land of Egypt. Many of us here, I can vouch this as an immigrant myself, many of us here know of the excitement of moving to a new land. And many of us here have made Terra Australis our home. With all its hopes and possibilities and the better future for our family. At the same time, those of you who have come as children, you you had no much say in it because you just followed mum and dad, but some of you have made that decision as as adults, as grown-ups, and the associated fear and trepidation of having to adjust to a culture and language that is vastly for a lot of us, very different to our own. Jacob, the one who previously took on the world and won, there was no stopping him, is now having to surrender the reins of leadership to his son, Joseph. When young Joseph came to him years ago with a dream that he had, that everybody, including mum and dad, were going to bow before him, Jacob was a little bit put off. What, do you think, you you know, we're all going to just bow down to you? I mean, really? But he's stuck in his mind, I'm sure. Now, he would see with his own eyes the glory which God gave him, gave his son Joseph, and and the fulfilment of that dream in the land of Egypt. But this story of reunion and resettlement is has the imprint of the hand of God all over it, from the the micro stuff, the one family, the one life, to the land of Egypt, the surrounding lands, the God who controls the climate. Imagine that. The seven years of the skinny cows and the seven years of the fat cows and all of that, God, his fingerprint is on everything. Why? Because there's something much greater at play here. There is the plan of redemption, not just then, but God's redemption through history. So let's look at verses 1 to 7, the journey to Egypt. So Israel set out with all that was his, 
And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. And I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Incidentally, incidentally, this week marks the centenary of the, the famous battle of the Shiva in World War I, where the Australian Light Horse Brigade, um, against all odds, did something stupidly courageous and came out on top. It's, it's legendary what happened there. But the mercy of God was with the, with the Australian light, horse, light horsemen and, and the, just the, the strategic point of how the whole battle changed from that point on. So Bathsheba is a strategic place for us as Aussies as well. Now as Jacob departs the promised land, he comes to Bathsheba and pauses to worship God one last time before he leaves the land of Canaan. Now, why did Jacob offer sacrifices at Beersheba? Now, I will give you three significant reasons. First of all, geographically. Beersheba was the, the southernmost boundary of the promised land, of the land that God promised Israel. Let's call it the international border. It was the point of no return before they journey into the vast desert wasteland that separated Canaan and Egypt. So it was a significant place geographically. There is also another reason is the tradition, traditionally. Beersheba was a significant place for the family. This is where Abraham had dug a well planted a tamarisk tree and called on the name of the Lord. We go back to chapter 21 for that. And Grandpa Abraham even lived in Beersheba after offering Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah from chapter 22. Dad, or Isaac, lived in Beersheba, that's in chapter 26, and built an altar there. And it was perhaps at this very altar that Jacob now presents his sacrifice to God. And the third reason is a spiritual one. Spiritually, you see, relocating to Egypt seemed to be at odds with God's promise to give his people the land of Canaan. So Jacob inquired of the Lord to be absolutely certain that this was indeed the Lord's perfect will. Remember how Grandpa got into trouble when he went down to Egypt? He wandered outside the promised land and had to lie and all of that. And Dad, Isaac, he also wandered about leaving the promised land but then changed. God told him not to do it. So instead of forging ahead like his forebears had done before, he stopped and sought God's guidance and listened to, for God's answer. 
something that was quite strange for Jacob. He just went and did it. And God appears to him and identifies himself to him and he says, I am God, the God of your father. I am the true deity. This is who I am. It is the same one. There is a consistency here. Then God comforts Jacob with the words, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why? Because he was afraid. And it is only after he heard the answer that he moves, that he moves ahead. And the thing is that just as God had been with Joseph, we read in those chapters that God was with Joseph in Potiphar's household and jail and all of that. God was with Joseph. God now says to to Jacob, I will go down to Egypt with you. Isn't that nice? You're going to come with me, Lord. That's all I needed to hear. And I will bring you back. No, he won't come back alive because by that stage he will again be dead. But the name Israel will come back and his bones will be brought back. But God was going to be with him. Sometimes we struggle to know God's will. Sometimes we struggle a lot and big decisions like this are very crucial that we seek God's will. In simple terms, it's not that complicated to find out God's will. And if we do that, God will lead us, he will protect us, he will be with us, his presence will be with us and and he will give us the strength to face even the future, even when it is uncertain. Because you see, this is, in simple terms, this is what we have to do. We have to ask, we have to listen, and we have to obey. It's not that difficult. Ask, listen, and obey. James says, in James 4.13, And then verse 15, he says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to do this, or that city will go to this, or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make a heap of money. Sounds pretty reasonable. In verse 15, he says, Hmm, instead you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Don't just go making decisions that seem right in your own eyes without inquiring of the Lord, without thinking of the Lord and by simply putting the the Lord's will to one side and you just go ahead and do what you want. Don't do that. Don't do that. You're asking for trouble. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. That's exactly what Jacob did. 
And then from verses 8 to 27, we have the small nation. And we're going to read verses 8, um, sorry, verse 25 to, uh, to 27. These are the names. In verse 8 it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants who went to Egypt. That's in verse 8. Then we jump to verse 26. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his sons, wives, numbered 66 persons. With two sons he had, who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. There's a whole list of names there in these verses. And we've done uh, genealogy before in, uh, in the book of Genesis. Genealogies. Not the most exciting messages you ever hear, so you would think. But it's like a, a passenger list on a plane or a cruise liner because the captain needs to know exactly who's coming on board before it departs. Now Jacob was 130 years of age and a great nation after 215 years, the great nation is only 70 descendants of Abraham. After 215 years. That's not a quick start, is it? But in the 400 or so years from Jacob to Moses, the number will bloom from 70 to over 2 million. What is also interesting is that the number of nations in Genesis chapter 10, back in Genesis chapter 10, is also 70. So just as the 70 nations represents all the descendants of Adam... So now the 70 sons represents all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the children of Israel. It's the new recreation of God's people. 70, it's a significant number in the Bible. And here is this long list of people that we know nothing about. It's... uh, I know that parents sometimes look for a name for their baby and they go and try and find the names in the Bible. But I don't think it's even useful for that unless you want to name your kid Muppin or Huppin, which is in verse 21. Mum, they make a lot of fun of my name at school. Um, Don't do it. Anyway. But God thought of it significant enough to include these these names were precious to him in his holy book. It was also significant for the first readers of this book. These names were significant because it is the list list of every tribe and every family group within that tribe that later would go on to form the nation of Israel. Every Hebrew knew their spot in the family tree, just like some of you have gone back to three, four, five, six, seven generations and you, and you want to know where your spot in the family tree is. Because the, the Hebrews were, were divided from the division of labour, the organisation of the army, the, the, the breakup of the land, the parceling of the land, all were based upon the tribes. 
Even the coming of the Messiah was through the particular tribe, as we've spoken before, the tribe, the Lion of Judah. One of the problems of modern life, of course, is that people are increasingly, as much as we tend to be, we want to be connected, we are increasingly disconnected relationally. Yes, social media has enabled us to, I think at a superficial level at least, to touch base and reconnect with long-lost relos and friends and everybody else. Through Facebook I've been able to find friends and relatives that I didn't even know I had. But then you, they go and post something on Facebook and you say, oh, I just, you know, friend them and then I'm just ready to unfriend them with just a click of a button because I don't know them it's, you know, we're supposed to be friends or whatever and relatives and everything else but they're just so different or, and everything else I mean there's, no, there's nothing in common we can actually disconnect just as quick in other words friends and family for that matter become very easily disposable. Sometimes it happens when people find out that you're a Christian. Sometimes people do that, especially when they find out that you're a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor, are you? A weirdo. Um, Western society is very big on individualism. And for some of us who are immigrants, we struggle a little bit with the intense individualism of Western society. Because where we come from, family and being relationally connected is is very important. But you see, as we come as the people of God and and in, in a church, from all these different places, God has brought us together as a family. And we are to be connected. This is where we find our connections. There is a reason why we call each other brothers and sisters. Because it's, it's a relational. We are part of the family of God. We are God's covenant people. His extended family, adopted family. Just as Israel was his chosen people, we are God's chosen people. So we need to fight against that individualism that tries to tear us apart and with a click of a button just simply unfriend each other. There's more to it than that. There's, 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 that which holds us together is it's much more important. This is a spiritually significant place because of the people of God, because of who we are, we are here. And what he's trying to do with us as we journey with God. Verses 28 to 30, we come to seeing Dad. Now Jacob, verse 28, sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. And when they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. 
As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. And Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. They didn't know exactly what part of Egypt they were going to settle. There was no Google Maps in those days. So they needed directions where they were going. Now in the previous chapters we already know that the 11 brothers had already been reunited with Joseph. So they, they made a couple of trips to, to Egypt. So they were a little bit more familiar but the place that was chosen, that was going to be given to them to settle was a different place. But more than that, after 22 years of separation, Jacob gets to meet his son, his beloved Joseph, once again. This is, this is such a, a tender, special, highly emotionally charged moment as dad and son get to hug each other after all of those years, 22 years of separation. Joseph cries uncontrollably and he says here, he wept for a long time. He wept for a long time. Just think of the reasons for those tears. Just think about it. The... the, the emotional discharge of all of that, that every, every drop, every tear, significant. Because they both, well, dad thought he was dead, but Joseph just longed to meet his dad once again after all that time. That's why when the brothers came and said, is dad still alive? And here we finally see this precious, tender, Moment. Nobody's in a hurry. It's, it's like time was, was frozen there and the tears just flow. Jacob once again, who, who, who thought that he lost his sons, he thought that he would go to the grave just mourning, he become, Jacob had become really pessimistic, didn't he? Now, however, God shows his goodness, his mercy, his grace by, by giving him the privilege of reuniting with alive, this side of heaven, with his beloved Joseph. And now that Joseph is back in the land of the living, looks like Jacob is also got another spring to, him, to himself. He, he can, yeah, he can go to the grave a happy man. He can now cross this off the bucket list, I suppose. I, coming up to Christmas, one of, the, one of the fabulous scenes of the Christmas story is when Jesus is brought into the temple and there is an old fellow there called Simon who, after seeing... The, the chosen one of God, the, the redemption, the salvation of God in his plan, and behold, the baby in his hands, his child in his hands, he also declares, you can now send your servant in peace. I can now die because I've seen the salvation of the Lord. 
That's sort of the, the sentiment that Jacob displays. wonder if there are some things that we carry with us and say, before I die, I would like to... You know what fills the space, isn't it? It could be a broken relationship. It could be a person. It might be a person that you haven't seen in so many years, maybe even decades, and you say, before I die, I would like to touch base with them at, at least. You know, it's, it's, I know we all have different bucket lists, but some of those things in the bucket list are much more important than others, aren't they? Because they involve people. Maybe one of those things is I would like to share the gospel with this person if God gives me another opportunity. Don't waste it. Keep praying about it that God gives you that opportunity. Now God blesses Israel in verses, uh, chapter 46, verse 31 to chapter 47, verse 12. So there's a, there's a, a chunk of the passage here. Chapter 46, verse 31 to chapter 47, verse 12. When Pharaoh, this is verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you and asks, this is Joseph's instructions to his brothers, because they're going to go and meet Pharaoh, have a private meeting with him. When Pharaoh calls you and asks, what is your occupation, you should answer. Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. As we know from the track record of the sons of Jacob, and even Jacob himself, honesty wasn't their, their highest accolade, was it? It just wasn't, they just were dishonest people. But now Joseph is wanting to get them out of this destructive behaviour by telling his family, by telling his brothers to be, when they go to Pharaoh, to be completely honest with him. Tell him the truth. Honesty is the best policy, my friends. And the brothers answer Pharaoh's questions and ask his permission to live in Goshen. And Pharaoh tells Joseph and his family that they can indeed live in Goshen. He even offers a job for the brothers to, put in, to be in charge of uh, Pharaoh's prime livestock. Now, Joseph is pushing for the area of Goshen because, why? Because he had some of the best pastures in all of Egypt. Goshen is the well-known, if you know the, the River Nile, the, the longest river in the world, it, it, before it discharges into the Mediterranean, it forms a whole, it's a region, a delta region. Very fertile to this day, the best pastures in all of Egypt, well watered. And it was also located near to Joseph's place of residence, which uh, chapter 45 tells us about. So these people, his brothers, his family will live for many years under the protection and care of Joseph. More than that, Goshen would keep the Hebrews isolated and 
insulated from a culture and religion of Egypt since the Egyptians considered anybody who worked with animals. They considered cowboys to be, you know, the lowest of the low. You definitely don't want to marry a cowboy. You know, those who tended sheep and and, uh, goats and all of that, they were unclean, they were detestable to the Egyptians. Well, that's very racist, racist, isn't it? Well, I'm sorry, but that's the way it was. You're just telling us like it is. And, and God is sending his people to a very racist country where they will probably suffer discrimination, but they will be together. The Egyptians will have nothing to do with them because, you see, if they stayed in, in Canaan, it was the, the possibilities that the which was already starting to happen, that they were going to start to intermarry with the Canaanites and slowly but surely their identity as the people of God would be lost. So God is keeping his people together in this region separate from the rest of the Egyptians so they can stay together and multiply, protected, protected from spiritual adultery and allowing them the opportunity to be blessed and to multiply into the millions. So, yes, things will get bad further down the track, but for now, under God's providence, things are actually looking pretty good. Now, God blesses Pharaoh from verses 13 to 27. There was no food, however. This is verse 13. There was no food, however, in the whole region because of the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. And Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. And when the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. And then they offered themselves as as slaves and all of that. Joseph brought his old father, Jacob, to meet, to have a private audience with Pharaoh as well. And in the process, uh, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. He blesses the ruler of Egypt. And and these verses that we find here are the fulfilment, the fulfilment of the blessing of Jacob on the Pharaoh. And God, through Joseph, was able to save Egypt and its neighbours from the very severe famine that was all over the place. Not just the Egyptians were starving, but the surrounding lands as well. So Pharaoh received money from Egypt and Canaan, livestock, land and slaves, and 20% of all the future harvests were going to the Pharaoh. Now, what is happening here is basically servitude. It's the old feudal system where we have the Lord and everybody else, all the other peasants, just basically surrender everything they have in order to work for the king. 
That doesn't sound very fair, does it? And we can look at these verses with a touch of historical revisionism with our own biases and everything else, with our own democratic freedoms and everything else that we enjoy today, taken for granted, but we enjoy it, and see it as a terrible injustice for God to allow Pharaoh to enslave his people. And we can do that because our pantries and fridges are quite full, thank you very much, and when they're getting empty we just go to Woolies and buy some more. Make no mistake, make no mistake, this is the severest of droughts and the people were desperate. Everywhere. Everywhere. I don't know if any of you here know what a drought and starvation is like. Maybe some do. With a sense of desperation. Maybe your parents have told you about this. I know that some of our Cambodian brothers and sisters during Pol Pot were starting to die because of the fact that they were urbanites and suddenly pushed out into the bush and trying to find anything to eat, anything. My, uh, my father tells a story. He was born in 1934 and that was, he was born in the Ukraine at a time when uh, the Soviet Union under Stalin were... Ukraine is known as the, as the food bowl, the fruit bowl of, of Europe pretty much. Some of the most fertile land in all of Europe is in the Ukraine. But what Stalin did is what, he was basically enslaved the Ukrainians and, seven, and taking all the food from the Ukrainians, so leaving nothing for the Ukrainians and taking them all to the Soviet Union. In fact, many times displacing the Ukrainians, taking them to other parts of Siberia and other places where they basically died of starvation and cold and everything else. Seven million Ukrainians in the, in the genocide, seven million Ukrainians died in the 1930s. History doesn't tell you, doesn't say very much about that, does it? Um, but it happened. One of the stories that Dad tells is that some people came to a, a neighbouring farm because there was no food. There was a cow outside a milking cow, and they went inside and there was a mother. Now, you've got to understand this. A mother was cooking her own child in, in a pot. See, we don't understand what desperation is. And the person asks and says, why, you have a cow outside, why aren't you killing the cow? Why are you killing your own child? He says, well, the cow gives me milk. This is desperation, folks. That people are willing to do anything, even something as unbelievable as that. You, you lose your mind, your, your sense of value and everything else because of the starvation. It's just simply so, so severe. Before you throw all the leftovers from your meal, just think a little bit, 
give a little bit more sense and, and gratefulness for the fact that you do have a fridge, that you do have food, that you do have the ble- you're still under the blessing of God to be able to enjoy all these things. Because in many parts of the world, some of the stories that I've told, some of the stuff is, is actually real, even, even today. So let's not be too hasty and, and judge the situation there that everybody was being enslaved because ultimately when, you know, you, you can't eat gold, you can't eat silver, you can't eat your block of land, it's not very nutritious. Uh, if there's drought, there's nothing, nothing you can do. Basically, you just give yourself as a slave. And uh, there was no Centrelink, there's none of that. You, basically, all your life you say, I need some food and that's how you enslaved yourself. When life becomes to the very basic of it, you're simply existing and living from one day to the next. Yet God was blessing Pharaoh in order to feed his people through the wisdom divinely given to Joseph to organise all of that society for a period of seven years of superabundance to prepare for the seven years of the drought that were going to be so severe that people will be drawn to desperation. And yet here is a fulfilment of God's word, of God's promise to Abraham where he told him in chapter 12, he says, I will bless those who bless you. I will bless those who bless you. So this, the fact that Pharaoh is being blessed is a clear fulfilment of that promise. God blessed Pharaoh because he was blessing the Israelites with the best of Egypt. What is, even, what is even more amazing is that while the rest of the Egyptians, the locals were being enslaved, God's people, the sons of Jacob, they had all the freedom they wanted in the land of Goshen. They weren't being enslaved, but the Egyptians were. Obviously, things will change later in the book of Exodus, but let's not run too far ahead of ourselves there. Now finishing well in verses 28 to 31 in chapter 47. Verse 28, Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. And I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. So Jacob knew that he was going to die soon. But the, the, despite the fact that he said, you know, oh, now I can die in peace, he actually managed to live for another 17 years. Now, I've known people, and maybe you, too, you do as well, that for most of their life that I've known them, they've been dying the whole time. And they're still alive. 
I had an aunt in Paraguay who, you know, I think since the age of 40 she was dying. She lived to about 90. Man! Oh, I'm going to die soon. You know people like that, right? They're always dying. But so, uh, I'm just so melodramatic here. Come on. The sun's bright. Um, so, he lived for another 17 years. It's a lot of years. And it's interesting that Jacob lived and enjoyed the blessings of God with Joseph for 17 years because this is the same number of years he enjoyed Joseph before he was sold as a slave by his brothers. He was 17 when he was sold. So there's a bookend to his life here that Jacob gets to enjoy his son 17 years before he's sold and 17 years before he dies. I don't think it's, it's a coincidence. The psalmist Moses, who wrote Genesis, he said this in the psalm that we read at the beginning from Psalm 90, verse 15. Think about the years that I've just mentioned. He says, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen trouble. Isn't that interesting? Father and son together, for all that we know, these years we're not, you know, we're relaxed and sweet for both father and son. Not only that, but this tragically, what was before a tragically dysfunctional family has come together in genuine community in a way that no one could possibly have imagined. That tells me that there is, there is hope. There is always hope for your family, for my family. I don't care what has taken place in the past. God can still reconcile and bring restoration. Don't give up hope. Don't give up on God because God loves to bring loved ones back together again. And Jacob's last item on his bucket list was to be buried in the land of Canaan, the land of his fathers. He wants this to stand as a testimony that their hope was not in Egypt. It was in the promised land of, of God. God. God's future was, was back there in, in despised Canaan, not in luxurious and powerful Egypt. It was back there. And, and Jacob wanted to make sure that his life, his legacy, that, he, that the fact that his, his remains would go back to Egypt will be a testament to the generations that were to follow. that long after he's gone, that his, his deeds will be remembered and retold and that his example will be followed for all the good things. Now, the message for us is don't get too comfortable in Egypt. Don't get too comfortable in Australia. Don't get too comfortable in this life. We are simply pilgrims in this land that our ultimate hope 
He's not in Egypt. He's not in Australia. But in the promised land of God, in his mercy. And pray that our lives will leave a wonderful legacy for our kids to follow. That at the very least, our kids will not be able to say, I am the way I am because dad just didn't care and left me a terrible example. Don't give them that privilege. Give them a springboard to life so that they will love the God that you love and follow his steps each step of the way.